Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 63rd episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. I'm your host, SBJ, and with me today, I have Sean. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you, man? I'm great. Doing very well. Alan sends his regards. He's dead. I would. Actually, him and Captain (laughs) Chessbeard went on a cruise together, a little holiday cruise. I would love to track episodes without alan and see how well they perform it's probably low he's in almost every single episode i think i think he's in more episodes than me and i'm the host he's very dedicated he's definitely in more episodes than i am he's very dedicated he loves this podcast it is a joy for him he's been wanting to do a podcast i want to say almost longer than he's been wanting to make a board game company like he's had several starts and uh you know side projects where he's like trying to get some podcasts up and running and so I think he genuinely just loves the format. Besides, like, how do I phrase this? I, and of course, you're going you're gonna to speak for him, which I think is the only appropriate way to handle things. But sure. do you think he, he just loves the medium or he just likes talking and expressing his feelings or he's just a big podcast fan himself? So he's definitely a huge podcast fan, first and foremost. Every time we meet, it's sort of like it is with game designers. Where we'll meet somebody and he'll be like, that was so-and-so. And I'll be like, Who? He's like that with podcasts. He listens to a ton of different podcasts, just kind of like how he kickstarts a lot of things. It's like a genuine hobby of his. He also, I think, grew up with like shock jock DJs and stuff like that, like uh, morning shows, you know, because I know he knows like the Cleveland uh, morning show people and has like been tracking with them for a long time. So I think it's part of that. He's also like a performer, you know, like he acted a lot in college. And and so I think uh, this sort of is a natural what would you call a natural medium for his sort of uh, energetic performer personality or persona? I will say that when I first met you guys, I remember Alan very distinctively of just how he taught two rooms in a boom. And even like year after year, because it, you know, it took you guys forever to make a game. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like every time I would see him at Gen Con, the performance he gave, and it, it really is a performance. If, if our, our listeners have never seen Alan teach a game. He's a great demoer. Yeah, absolutely. Just fantastic. One of the best demoers ever. That alone really helps sell the game. There's nothing more like there there's nothing that would turn me off more than like sitting down to demo a game and the person there just is not willing to like sell it to you. Right. Yeah, to not like be into it. And that's always that like fine line that I think he treads really well. In fact, when I when we first met and he was working at Mage Wars, we'd put him on the front desk all the time. He'd wear like a Beastmaster costume with Sosruko, this little uh, ferret, I forget. And he'd wear it like on his <laughs> shoulder and he would, you know, uh, demo games. If we ever had to demo a game for like a celebrity or a VIP, he would be the one who would do it. Part of that's because he's a natural performer. Part of it's also because he's a teacher and there's a lot of performance in that. So he gets really good at culling a game's mechanics down to its basics and sort of revealing information on like a good easy curve for new listeners and letting them know more and more and he really takes pride in it like he really is interested in his sales pitch and his elevator pitch and how he can get it down to you know be better and better and there's like it's not an easy job i don't like doing it we have different fields of the company i don't love demoing games and i don't like uh selling in person like i love like sales i just don't like (laughs) you know, trying to convince somebody to buy our game. It's just not like really in my wheelhouse. It's something I can do and I had to do in the beginning. But as soon as I was able not to, it was something I wanted to get out of. Similarly, like Alan could do, you know, the taxes and accounting if he wanted to, but it's just not something he's interested in handling, you know? So he's always been really great about that. And it's a difficult thing because like somebody really has to push to get your game out there. And I think that's something a lot of board game designers who want to become publishers don't really think about is like if you are not the number one evangelist for your game, nobody else is going to do that for you. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I feel I feel like even sometimes with, with this podcast or my other podcast and like when I'm out with Irene, because Irene is the, the social one and the bunch, which is ironic because I, I talk weekly on different shows. But even when like we're out and stuff, she's like, hey, tell them about your podcast. And I'm just like, yeah, that's nah, not important. Like, but she's all about trying to sell it and stuff. And I feel like like that comes very across with Alan. Like he just loves pitching and selling and everything. And this uh, is now a podcast about Alan Girding and his life. <laughs> Since he's not here, we have to pitch for him. That's how good he is <laughs> at it. 
is that we're now doing it for him. Yeah, Speaking his- of which, to continue pitching, I'm going to be the one to tell us about the uh, Necroboomicon card of the week as we gear up for our Necroboomicon Kickstarter that's coming up really soon here. Yeah, this is the third card I think you're talking about. I think about. so, yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. So this card is one of my favorites, and it's called the Black Card. And it's just a pure black card. It says the black card on it. it has a little reminder text, but no graphics, no team, no nothing. It was super easy for me to do the design for. Um, <laughs> and it was it was the first time we had really sort of said, like, let's just really play with the format of what we can do. Um, like, we've really established a vocabulary with our cards. They're red, they're blue, sometimes they're gray, sometimes they're other colors, but they always have color bars and icons of art. And we were like, with the black card, let's just get rid of that. We almost thought of having it just purely printed black. Uh, but we thought people might think it was like a misprint or something and throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> so we just went with this pure black card. And the black card, like I said, it's completely black. Um, and the way that the black card wins, it's sort of like uh, a great team. It has its own individual win condition. If any player color shares with you, then you win and everyone else loses. So it's, it's, it adds this really dangerous element to the game where you don't even want to color share anymore. And it works really well if you put it in with spies or koi boys or groups that like share all the time and everyone's always color sharing. It's not great with 10 or fewer players because you can't color share in those games anyway. This really helps make the games very, very intense, particularly with large groups. Because, you know, the color sharing is sort of put in the game as that like first tenacious step towards trust and when the black card is in the game we like scrap all of that yeah it's it's funny how you like said it and said what it did you know if you color if you color share with the black card that person wins the game and just if i looked at that on paper or i looked at that in just the rules and maybe i'm not you know maybe i played two rooms in a boom once or twice that seems not fun right that seems like sure, yeah. Oh, well, that person just wins. Well, that's dumb. Why would anyone color share? But I think when you elaborated on it, when you explained it, and how in big groups there is, you have to take more risks of trust, and you start forming teams, and like th- then you sold me on it, and then that seems really exciting because I think in some games people can get very comfortable, and once you once you introduce a card to cause tension. I think you have a more exciting game. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, um, we're trying to get, you know, many expansions out for Terms of the Moon. We've got a lot of great ideas and a lot of requests from a lot of fans. Um, some of them are mechanical. Some of them are thematic or alternate art and those kinds of things. And something I really want us to focus on as we release new expansions for the game are expansions that fundamentally change the experience you're having. Um, because you've already got the base game, right? And you've got tons of cards in the base game. And so I want the expansions to really toy with those core mechanics of uh, trust and color sharing and voting and how the the rooms work and how the hostages work. Because we want basically every expansion to give you all these new tools for you to play with so that you can further uh, make the game unique for your group or your play style. So if you're a really trusting group or if you're a really distrusting group, if you're a really backstabby group or if you're really um, sort of like a co-op team collaborating group, um, we want to give you more tools that can help you perfect that kind of game um, for you and your players. Uh, we don't want to just release sets that are like, this is exactly like the last one, but it has different art. Um, not that we don't want to add new art to the game or, or alternate art cards, but that we want to stick with that fundamental, what is going to make the game different and fun and sort of give people a new lens to see two rooms at a boom every time they play. That's super exciting. How And you said 11 cards in the game? There are nine cards. Oh, okay, okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yep. Well, we I guess uh, we will keep you up because you have no date for the Kickstarter yet, but you do still plan on doing a, a new card every week. A new card every week. It's coming up really soon. Uh, the holidays have kind of like, you know, we're just trying to get everything done and, and still enjoy our time in the holidays. Um, but we're working on the Kickstarter video right now. And I think we have the shipping information sort of worked out. Um, and we are going to start gearing up to launch here really soon. I would I would assume, I would hope, I never like to assume that this might be one of your easiest Kickstarters to launch and complete. You, you know, we learned a lot um, from Two Rooms in a Boom. And we're trying really hard. Um, 
with this game to have just all of our ducks in the row and um, really just have a great Kickstarter experience for all those two rooms and boom backers who supported us and were really patient with us um, just to show uh, this is sort of like a coming out party for our just new way of releasing expansions and our new way of breathing fresh air into uh, sort of this game that we love. Well, we got an exciting show for you guys today and or girls, guys or girls or any any or bears or Back giraffes <laughs> are, uh, we're just going down this going down this path. So because the year is ending, I thought it would be best to talk about some of the games that came out specifically in 2016 that we enjoyed. I'm sure if Alan was here, this podcast would be four times as long because Alan plays everything that comes out ever. Uh, but I have a couple games that came out in 2016 that I really enjoyed. I believe Sean uh, grabbed a bunch too. If you uh, haven't played them or they somehow missed your radar, it would give you something to look forward to after Christmas. Or I mean, at this point, can't ask for them for Christmas because this is uh, the day after here, or two days after. But I just want to, before before we get into our picks, let's just run down a couple on the top of Board Game Geek here just to kind of obviously we won't have time to talk about all all of them but just some games that come out some honorable mentions so on board game geek i just searched by 2006 2016 to 2016 and then organized by board game rank so that's the overall rank which is pretty close slash similar to average rating i think they go hand in hand but uh for at least 2016 number one was star wars rebellion followed by scythe Terraforming Mars, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, Mechs vs. Minions, I never heard of that one, A Feast for Odin, Great Western Trail, I've never heard of that one either, Arkham Arkham Horror, the card game, Quadropolis, which I know was something that Shut Up and Sit Down put on their top list for the year, Uh, Captain Sonar, Codename Pictures, Sushi Go Party, Millennium Blades, Cry Havoc, Dead of Winter, The Long Night, Secret Hitler, so those are just some of the games that came out this year. And I think there are 47 pages on Board Game Geek with games that came out. Uh, so, Sean, do you want to start? You have uh, how many games do you have? Uh, I've only got a couple here, but my favorite by far. Oh, you're gonna uh, start I with played, your all-time favorite, eh? Ooh, how about I just start by shitting on a couple games? Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> actually, a couple of the games that I'm looking forward to that I haven't tried, um, or that I've like demoed very lightly, but I haven't got to play, like really dig into. Um, is Star Wars Destiny and uh, Conan. Um, Star Wars Destiny, if you don't know, is a card game that involves a lot of dice, and it's really cool because you're like, you've got these specific dice that go with your characters, um, and they're really cool. They've got like, you know, images. Uh, they look like stickers that are sort of printed on them, or maybe they're like laminated over, over the top of the dice. But it's a really quick game where it's like i do a thing you do a thing i do a thing you do a thing and a couple times you do a couple things but there's this huge back and forth and uh with everything that's been going on with star wars recently um with the new movies and everything this really star wars has been killing it on the merchandising front star wars destiny star wars rebellion um the x-wing game is awesome the role-playing game looks like a lot of fun but this one looks Star Warsy. It's not like super tactical or hardcore. It looks like very fun and very light, kind of like a duel, which is, you know, what I want it to be like. Um, I got to watch a couple of people playing this at BGG Con and sit in and go over the turns um, as everything was sort of ex- explained to me. And it looks like a lot of fun. The next one that's interesting is uh, Conan. Uh, I'm a huge Conan fan uh, from the stories mostly and the movie. And I'm mostly just interested to play Conan. Knock off Hercules. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you could knock off like a like a mythological figure, (laughs) Conan just comes from that interesting period of like sword and sorcery, appendix N level um, fantasy novels, where they all come out of these old pulp magazines in like the 30s and 40s, and the sort of like standard fantasy setting like orcs and goblins and elves hadn't really been established yet. And so this idea of what could be in a fantasy story was really wide open. And Conan comes from that sort of tradition where short stories were more the norm as opposed to like now where like nobody would ever read a fantasy short story. Like if you want to read a fantasy story, you want to read like a 16 book epic saga, you know? Um, So Conan was always just like more my speed because it was like short and it got in and got out. But games like this, 
it was demoed to me like on the last day of BGG Con, and the guy, you know, did a great job, but it was sort of one of those demos where it's like, okay, so you have a guy, and your guy has actions, and it's like, no, I get what a board game is. Like, can you please just tell me the one <laughs> thing about this game? This is All a right, dice. Well, like, yeah, you can spend your actions to do different things. It's like, oh, God, I'm dying. <laughs> please move faster. <laughs> and it looked like it had some interesting things, but games like this always just remind me of like, well, why wouldn't I just be playing a role-playing game right now? And I get that it's sort of like, if you think of like a cool miniatures game, the reason you're playing a miniatures game instead of a miniatures war game is that you're going to commit like an hour to an hour and a half as opposed to three to four hours. And that's sort of the point of these like small tactical combat-oriented games where it's like you play a scenario, but you've really got to like simplify it if we're not just going to like play a role-playing game for me. And so it looked like it was kind of fun and it had some interesting things with like, you know, it's co-op competitive where you've got like a game master type figure and then a few people fighting against him and the game master can kind of like play monsters and stuff like that. So like th- that part of it is interesting to me. But again, it's sort of like, why am I not just playing D&D and using all the miniatures that I want in the world and customizing it to my play style? So I'm interested in it, but I didn't want to like throw down the coin for a thing that, you know, I might already have for free, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I'll save my my game of the year, my game of the year for last, but two games I really... Actually, uh, let me start with a game that I thought I would enjoy a lot, and actually it didn't pan out, uh, which is Sushi Go Party. Ooh. I think all three of us big Sushi Go fans, uh, it's like Seven Wonders, but a million times better. Sushi Go Party was announced. I was very excited for it, being a fan of the original Sushi Go. Also, it loved the fact that they increased the player count I think Sushi Go is to five, but Sushi Go Party goes up to eight. Sushi, more Sushi Go, more players. That's great because I'm always in the situation where I have like seven people over. So I finally played it recently. The uh, last episode I talked about, I played a bunch of games. One of them was Sushi Go Party. And it just didn't seem that great. It seemed like an expansion that wasn't really thought out. It seemed like we increased it to eight people just for the fact of now you have more players and it seemed like we added new sushi cards just for the fact that we needed something different so you'd buy this game again and maybe i maybe it's funny you bring that up because i was just listening to um the serlin games podcast uh this guy dave serlin who makes codex who's which is a game that came out in 2016 that i want to play but they were talking about sequels this is like a super old episode but i was like catching up um and like what makes a good sequel um and is it like a cash grab sometimes or like how much content do you have to produce or is like even small balance changes enough because whereas like we're totally willing to buy like super mario kart 7 and 8 uh we're not really willing as an industry to buy like just a new edition of the game <laughs> you know like if we're just like it's terms and a boom but you know we've made some balance changes buy it again like people wouldn't love that you know right and so i think you know this goes back to what we we're talking about with necroboomicon where it's like how much have you expanded the core gameplay for old players and how much of this is just you know what this is just sushi go for for new people expanded to eight right like if you already have sushi go there's no reason for you to buy this unless you just want to get more people in there it's not going to be that big a difference because you already like sushi go right yeah yeah totally and one of the one of the turnoffs for sushi go party for me was there's the there's the dessert dis- distribution of well we just did pudding right everyone knows the pudding you Whoever has the most pudding at the end of the game gets six points. Six points. Whoever has the least gets negative six points. And so I read the rules, and it said, you know, in a six to eight player game, we were playing with seven. You're supposed to add. I think it's. I think it's like twelve pudding. Added the twelve pudding. Shuffled. Handed out everyone seven cards. We did our rounds, and then I checked the rule book, and it said, okay, for round two, you add five pudding. I was like, okay. So when I did that, and I passed out the cards, oh. Well, some of us have seven, and some of us have six cards. That doesn't work for a drafting game, I don't think. And so, like, I checked through the rule book. There was nothing on it. I checked Board Game Geek for rule clarification. Nothing on it. And then one of my friends in the group was like, "Oh yeah, we ran into the same issue at Gen Con when we played it, and no one had an answer. And so we just kind of pulled pulled out some cards. And I was like, okay." Well, right away, like, that's all, all already, like, brings the game down a notch. And again, like, I feel like I'm pretty okay at reading rule books. And we played with the, you know, the whole, like, quote-unquote starter set, like, the recommended thing. 
so yeah, that was just a big bummer because Sushi Go, I never ever had a, a rule dispute or a problem. It was always very straightforward. Play it. It was over in a couple minutes. Like I shouldn't spend more time looking at the rule book than I am playing the game. And Sushi Go in itself, especially is very... if you've already played it before, essentially, right? Like right. I don't want to get confused by a new version of a game that I already love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, well, I when I put I put Sushi Go Party on my list, and then the more I thought about it, I was like, actually, I don't think I enjoyed that game that much. I had a game like that where I really wanted to like it, and it did not go well for me. And that's a uh, role player, which sort of pitches itself as. Um, have you ever, you know what min-maxing is in role-playing games? Yes, yeah. It's this idea of, you know, uh, making these really wonky characters who, you know, put all their stat points or whatever, have, who have maximized their ability in one area and minimized their ability in another area. So maybe they're like a totally uncharismatic, super stupid, uh, you know, hulking beast who does, you know, massive amounts of damage, but is functionally just like unable to cope with the everyday realities of normal life because their so their intelligence is so low role <laughs> players a game where you sort of compete to uh, make role-playing game characters you have like stats and you know a class and a race and you get sort of euro gamey style points for um you know getting high stats and then meaning certain like objectives like if your alignment is chaotic evil there's certain things you could do to nudge your alignment from neutral to chaotic evil and you get more points at the end of the game for that and so i was like oh this will be like a really fun light kind of dice manipulation sort of game and once we got into it it was like intense it was like every move mathematically you've got to be thinking of not locking yourself into certain positions for later in the game it just had that re like we were thinking hard by the end of it and so it's not that it was a bad game as much as it like totally was not what I was expecting. And had somebody been like, oh, yeah, you're going to you're going to really have to concentrate on this one. I would have been like, nope, sorry, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, I, I really wanted to like Mafia de Cuba. And after like playing it two or three times, I just I just didn't. And that was a bummer because on paper, everything I read, all the reviews I saw, I was like, this is my kind of game. And it just didn't pan out. But a game I really, really did like was Happy Salmon. Ooh. which we talked about a little bit last week, but I, I got this game at Gen Con. It's by North Star Games, the same people who make uh, Evolution, which is one of my favorite games. I, uh, Evolution, of course, didn't come out this year. Uh, some expansions did that I haven't played, but Happy Salmon is a game that is from four to six players, or sorry, three to six players, but best with like five or six. The game plays in about two minutes. It's super fast, so for those who are unfamiliar, unfamiliar, it's like a, you know, $12, $15 game, and it's a bunch of cards, and they say different things on it, like uh, high five, or fist bump, or switch places, or happy salmon, which is when you, like, shake somebody's hand, but you're actually just, like, slapping the inside of their forearm, and they're slapping the inside. It, it's weird, uh, but it's really funny, and so it's... <laughs> So everyone has a little deck of cards in their hand, and every time they complete something, like, oh, I, I need somebody to high-five with, that's my goal. So I'm shouting, high-five, high-five, and if Sean has high-five, and he's shouting it, we look at each other, we high-five, we both discard that card, we move on to the next one. And it's really, really chaotic, it's really loud, and it's really, really funny. And, like, easily the most enjoyment I got out of like $15 at Gen Con ever of just laughing and having fun and talking about it. And it's just a really, really great game. Like it's not going to, it, it's not revolutionizing the industry or anything, right? It's, it's not like this. It's not like Seafall or something where you're spending hours on hours of like reading a rule book, setting it up, having this epic journey. It's really just like a two minute experience that is really, really great. And a lot of the times, at least for me, I'm like in a situation where Again, going back to Irene and, and how she, she likes to do the talking, she loves to invite people over to play board games. And like a lot of the times I hear people go, oh, I'm just, I'm just not a board game person. Uh, or uh, or they, they say, oh, you mean like Monopoly or Scramble or like Battleship? And it's, it's so hard that that perception is out there. And, to, and where, do you, where do you start, right? Like wh what game do you show them to you know, convince them that, I guarantee you say you're not a board game person, but I guarantee you that there is a game on my shelf that I know you would like. Oh, that's always the tough question. Yeah. And I feel like Happy Salmon can instantly break 
that walled down in two, especially in two minutes, because I, I mean, at least Sushi Go, you, you have some rules. It takes like 15 minutes or so, but like Happy Salmon, it's like, all right, this is nothing like Monopoly. This is nothing like Clue. This is nothing you've ever played. And if you don't have a smile on your face at the end of two minutes, I don't think you're a real person. No, it's telling. Like the the game that we played the most at uh, my girlfriend's family's place for Thanksgiving was Spoons, and that's because we're playing with uh, like six year olds up to you know people in their middle age, like and and like everyone's just sitting around laughing and joking, and like uh, it's like the simplest, stupidest game in the world, and they're making up rules. Like, okay, now you have to have you know these cards to win, or you have to have this card to win, etc. But what made it easy to play was like we didn't have to think about the rules and I didn't have to teach somebody really how to play spoons, you know. And so a game that can really minimize that sort of downtime where you're teaching people can really make for a great gateway game. Yeah. So I I think Happy Salmon should be on everyone's shelf and it's so light and easy to throw it in a bag and take it somewhere. I think the only the only like again, the only maybe downfall thing is it works best at like a uh, like almost like a bar table, a table that you can stand at and then move around quickly, like a circle table. It'd be a little awkward maybe with like a bigger square table or something because it does involve you switching places or running around. But that's more like that's not the game's fault. That's kind of like your location or your setup because uh, you can't play it sitting. But Sean, do you have a, another game on your list? Yeah, I've got I've got a couple more so we can go as long or short as you want. But um. Another game that I really wanted to love, but just didn't quite do it for me, was the Bloodborne card game. I don't have, uh, like, a console, and I really wanted to. In fact, the only games that I was, like, dying to play were the, like, Dark Souls, Demon Souls, Bloodborne games. Um, I was really kicking myself for not having a console, but it was, like, also not worth it to buy one just to play those games. And so I was like, ooh, Bloodborne card game. I saw that they did, like, a Dark Souls Kickstarter game, and that looked really cool. Um, and I was hoping that uh, Eric Lang did the like um, game design and he did Blood Rage and I loved Blood Rage. And so I was really hoping for to really sort of fall in love with this game because it's a cool property and um, having like good Bloodborne Demon Souls type board games I thought would be really interesting. Um, and I should say that the game works. It's basically uh, what I call like a lose together win apart game, which is that it's co-op except one of you will win at the end of the game for having like the most points, um, which I don't like love. And it's also one of these automated systems where like you're fighting random cards and random bosses from like a deck of cards. And for some reason, I just haven't been attracted to that kind of gameplay ever since Sentinels of the Multiverse, which I really liked. And that, that game was just pure co-op. So like it could be really hard. The bosses could be really devastating, but there's something about playing against like a random number generator. <laughs> it doesn't do it for you. Yeah, it doesn't do it for me. Like, I'd almost rather just be playing competitively and it'd be a really hard game because we're both trying really hard rather than, like, the game has kind of a static difficulty. You know, you're either going to win or lose, and then you're sort of fighting against each other. I don't know. Um, Just a few things like that that really didn't do it for me. The art's gorgeous. You know, again, it's a functional game. I think a lot of people will like this game, and I wouldn't fault them for it at all. It's just sort of difficult when... And I think this is going to happen a lot when you have like properties that were already a really great video game, and now you have to bring them into the board game space. And it's like, how do you make an amazing board game after an amazing video game? One of the only games that I've even seen that does this is uh, I love the XCOM game. And the XCOM game does an amazing job of being very difficult. You're fighting against a random number generator there, but it's pure co-op, and it feels a lot like the video game at the same time. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's one of the things where it's like a very similar kind of game. Uh, but they just executed on it better. One game I didn't really care for too much that came out in 2016 is Machi Koro Big Lights Big City Bright Lights Big City. Whoa. Big big Machi Koro fan. I didn't I didn't care for this uh, this rendition of it. Uh, a game that was on my radar that was at Gen Con that I picked up, really really enjoyed. Kind of has the same appeal. Maybe maybe I'm just into these games all of a sudden. Same kind of appeal as Happy Salmon was a game called Tada, which is made by Stephen Avery and published by Cool Mini or Not. Pretty sure it plays three to six players, but we've talked about this before. It is a dexterity game where you are rolling dice and then matching those dice to uh, a card, which is quote unquote your spell. So the spell might need like two wands and two explosions 
And then the first person to match that uh, is the winner. Uh, the twist is that every round there's a rule that you have to do. So one of the rules might be uh, you can only use one hand, which rolling dice, scooping dice back into a cup and rolling again as fast as you can with one hand is kind of difficult. Uh, or another rule might be that you have to keep your hands together. So you can use both hands, but they can't, they always have to be touching at like the palms, which again, very difficult. In my, in my playthroughs, and I've played this game actually with a bunch of people, it's one of the quote-unquote gateway games I use, or a let me show you this game that you've never played before, or a game like this that you've probably never played before. Uh, it just goes over very, very well. It's very funny. Seeing people that normally don't play games try to do these weird positions because of the rules, and then it's also like very rewarding to... like not only see those people like do weird positions or weird things like, oh, you have to hold your finger under your nose the entire time like a mustache. Not only see them do it, but like, see them laughing and see them having like a, gen like a really, really good time and get really into it. To be competitive and try to win a game when you're doing something very silly just makes for a really memorable experience. That's awesome. So yeah, to die, I think it's, it's probably 25 20 25 dollars uh but it is made by cool mini or not i love the art for that game and of course i love the designer and it kind of the design like harkens back to this classic era of board gaming like games like clue and monopoly just because it's like that rocky and bullwinkle style of art and i kind of like that because it's like already very timeless um whereas so many board games right now look like uh dvd covers for like animes or video <laughs> games you know yeah um to have something that just looks like it would fit right in on a stack of board games um, that included like Hero Quest, Monopoly, you know, Othello, like any just old games like in your shelf that are like kind of dusty and vintage looking, it fits really well in there. And I, I think that's a cool look. Yeah, I, I guess like now that I've been in the hobby for so long, one, I've, I've like stopped buying less games and it's not because, well, part, in, part because I'm afraid they're not going to get to the table or I'm afraid they might not ever get played. But I think now when I bring a, t a game out or I pack a bag of games to go somewhere, I want, like, I want to leave the impression that, these, that the games I play with people who mo most of the time are not board game players, they play games because that's something to do and they know like Irene and myself are coming over and we normally bring games. But I do want to leave that impression of, Oh my god, what was that game you brought last time? The one with the dice and the cups and stuff? Yeah. To like hear them bring that back up and remember that experience is like, okay, this game has like earned a spot on my shelf. Whereas like a game that I love, uh, like Power Grid, like that game's never going to leave that kind of impression because no one's going to be like, hey, do you remember that game where we had to like buy and sell garbage and oil and, and there was a lot of math? Yeah, bring that again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, but I know, <laughs> I know, I feel like that's not going to leave that kind of impression. Maybe with like, if I was playing with a bunch of accountants, it would, but. That's something we're asking ourselves a lot when we design games now is what's the experience like? We, we think a lot about like gameplay and mechanics and what's fun, what's just going to be fun to do at the table, but also like, what's the experience of playing this going to be like? Is it going to be memorable? Is it not going to be memorable? It's going to be fun for some people, but terrible for other people, or is it going to be kind of tepid for everybody? You know, Brian Pope, the designer of Mage Wars and the head of Arcane Wonders, uh, one of the nicest things he ever said about a game, uh, Alan Design, uh, Woo Wee, was uh, he said, any game where people are standing up and shouting around the table is a good game. And, you know, while that certainly doesn't apply to everything, it's a good metric for, like, those people look like they're having fun. Now, Donald from Boardwood Life also says, like, it's really hard to tell that two guys playing chess who are totally silent are having the time of their lives but oftentimes they are, so you can't always weigh it by this like loudness metric. But you can look at the experience and say, like, what kind of experience am I fostering here? And I think you're right when you have friends that are like, what was that one game that you brought over? I think that's half of what, at the very least, half of what Cards Against Humanity's marketing was like, was people going like, what was that game you brought over that had, you know, dick fingers or whatever? Like, um, <laughs> they just remember that experience, right? And for people who are not gamers at all, that's really all there is to it, right? It was either a memorable good experience or it was a memorable bad experience or it was not a memorable experience at all. Um, so the deck's kind of stacked against you. 
Well, I have one more game on my list, which is my game of the year. But what do you have left on yours, John? I'm, I'll, I'll just do uh, one game and then my game of the year. Um, a game that I really liked, since I've shit on a couple games here, was uh, <laughs> Insider by Oink Games. If you don't know Oink Games, they're this Japanese board game company that's really in vogue with hipsters like me because they're small, minimalist designs. Um, and because, you know, they're Japanese, it's hard to get over here and you can't find them in stores, blah, blah, blah. But I love their tiny little boxes and, uh, you know, their flat art design. Insider is essentially 20 questions plus Spyfall. So there's a master who knows a secret word, uh, like potato or whatever. And then there's essentially a spy, an insider, who also knows the word. The master doesn't know who the insider is. So the insider is like a spy or a werewolf or whatever. Then everyone asks, including the you know insider, asks the master 20 questions. Not really, but they ask them like, is it bigger than a bread box? Is it this? Is it that? And everyone's going to lose if they don't guess what the word is, including the insider. So the insider is incentivized to help people guess the word without helping them so much that they out themselves as the insider. So it's super fun, super easy to play because it's like this tiny travel size game. You could take it anywhere. It's one of those games like categories or spoons you can break out with friends and family. Um, so I really love that. I'm also having like a, a, a change in the kinds of games I like where I'm I'm looking at more competitive games right now than I am social games because with social games, you always end up with that scenario where it's like bluffing, lying and accusing, which I like and I'm good at, but it's a totally different kind of pressure than a game where you're just trying to win and everyone is also trying to win, right? Like in chess or whatever, which is the simplest analogy I could think of. We're both trying to win. It's not like shitty to try and win at chess, right? Right. <laughs> it's understood. There's like very little things you can do that are like bad play to the other player where you're going to make them have a bad time. You're going to beat them. And, you know, like depending on how sportsmen like you both are, that can be a good or bad experience. But with social games, there's always like a fine line of like what is socially acceptable to do to win. And you're all just supposed to be there to have fun and not care about winning, obviously, but it's still a game. And so it's like you have to walk that weird line of like, is it appropriate to do this? Is it appropriate to do that? Like, can I get emotional about it? Can I not get emotional about it? Can I pretend to be emotional about it, but not really be emotional about it? Um, and Insider doesn't do this more or less than any other social deduction game. You know, Terms of Moon, Werewolf, Spyfall, uh, Resistance included. Um, and so I really do love the game, and I'm going to play it a million times. I could just start to tell around the time that I played this game is also around the time that I've started looking at other games that are maybe higher competitive level just because it's what i'm getting interested in now awesome awesome was that your game of the year no i love that game and i bought it and i'll take it around with me everywhere and i'm hoping to play it over the next week as i have like a ton of people in town but my game of the year if you'd like to know mm -hmm. is flam rouge f-l-a-m-m-e rouge <laughs> <laughs> flam rouge if you don't know is a competitive bicycle racing game you know like the tour to france that already sounds great oh yeah um and what i love about it is it's so simple um but it very naturally and elegantly evokes the themes so i didn't know anything about the tour de france all i knew was like lance armstrong he lied and he was doping and whatever um but i didn't know anything about the strategy and the strategy of these bike races is really interesting chris bryant was telling me about it over about um uh at bgg con which is that it's all about this slipstream drafting mechanic, and I don't mean drafting like card drafting. What I mean is you've got a line of five cyclists, and they're all on the same team, right? And the guy in the front has the most wind resistance going against him, and every guy behind him has a little bit less. And so generally what you have happen is these teams where the guy in the front is, is not going to be the winner. The guy at the back is going to be the winner. The guy at the back is saving up all of his energy to at some point break away from the pack and spend all that energy on a giant burst to get to the end and win. It's a huge simplification of it because other times weird things happen. You know, you've got a guy who's third in line, who's on the team, who's like, you know what? Fuck Lance Armstrong. Like I'm going to win. I'm young. I deserve it. And he might break away and even like try to beat his own team at the game where they've like had their own strategy. Like this is how we're going to do it. And he might've been like, fuck it. I'm going to win. Teams will also like draft before and behind each other like it gets really interesting um so in flam rouge you have two guys you know a sprinter and a ruler um and basically you've got a front guy and a back guy and you're playing against i think it's uh it's one to it's two to four players or one to four players so you're playing against other teams that also have a couple of bicyclists bicyclists and every turn 
you've got these little decks and you're going to play a card between like one and nine. And that's how many spaces you're going to move. But once you play that card, it's out of your deck for the rest of the game. So I might play like one and a two and I might move forward one space and two spaces. But what's interesting is if there's a gap between you and the next person in front of you, you slipstream, you move up into that space. Um, but if there's nobody there in front of you, if you're like maybe two spaces behind or you're at the head of the pack, you get an exhaustion card, which is like a shitty move card put into your deck. Um, so what happens is like if you don't slipstream a lot or if you're at the front of the pack, you're getting more and more exhausted. You're more and more likely to draw crappy move cards. And you can get rid of those by going downhill, where if you're like going downhill, everybody moves a minimum of five spaces. So you might play a one and instead move five. Um, or if you're going uphill, everyone can only move a maximum of five spaces. So it's really interesting where you're like drafting behind the other players and yourself. And then at the end of the game, you want to go nine, nine, nine. You want to just keep blasting forward, even taking these exhaustion cards um, in your hand. And it leads to these really amazing scenarios where like you've got people who have been drafting in the back the whole game. And boom, they just like sprint up in front of everybody and they win. Or you have somebody who like breaks away at the very like middle is just like, fuck it, I'm going to go for it. And they are just burning on fumes and barely able to eke across the finish line. But if they broke away at just the right time, they'll be able to make it. And all of this basically on a mechanic where you just play two cards every turn. So super fun, super elegant. I could play it with board gamers, non-board gamers. It feels like you're really, I mean, it doesn't feel like you're biking the Tour de France, but it feels like the decisions that are being made just on a very simplified level. I can't say how much I love this game. That sounds incredible. I'll bring it. We'll have to play it at like Origins or something. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really great. I'm like going to look it up instantly after after the show ends. Uh, well, my game, uh, my game of the year is something I've talked about before. It's what I picked up at Gen Con. It's called Exposed, uh, which is made by Overworld Games. Uh, it is two to six players, plays in about 30 to 40-ish minutes. Uh, it's super great. It's really, really good. And so for those that haven't played it, it is... Everyone is on this cruise ship, and they are stealing each other's wallets. You have to get seven wallets to win or be the only person not exposed by the other thieves. And so you out of so there's a bunch of tiles laid out on the ground of characters, and you're one of those that are randomly distributed to you, so there's a hidden role element to it. And you can steal anyone's characters that are around you in like a uh like a square like a d-pad almost except diagonal and so if if a wallet is stolen then the group would know okay he's one of these people around the stolen wallet yeah if you don't want to steal you can just switch characters around and start moving them uh or on your turn you can say that you want to expose somebody in the row you're in and the column you're in and that leads to uh you calling somebody out and making them lose their wallets uh, and it also gives them a little bit more information that, okay, well, he called out the police officer, but so we know he's either in this row or this column because that's the same row and column the police officer is in. So there's more and more information as the game plays out that's being revealed. And what I liked about it so much and why it's my favorite game, one, it's, it's, it's very easy and simple to teach. Uh, two, it has one of my favorite elements, which is the hidden role mechanic. But three, it's actually more of a strategy game than it puts on. And a lot of the times, I don't get to have strategy games get to the table. Like, Tada is as great as it is. It's a dexterity game. And Happy Salmon, it really, when it really comes down to it, it's who can scream and, and talk the fastest. But going back to games I really like, like Power Grid or or even I, I like chess a lot. Like, I think chess is a really, really great game. And, and it's it's hard to be a person who likes chess and not have anyone equal uh, on your level of playing chess because then it just kind of sucks the fun out of, like, all right, well, this isn't going to be as great as it would be if if we were competing at the same level. Um, but Expose kind of lets me experience that because it does give you the moments of, okay, I'm confident that I can steal a wallet this turn and no one's going to figure it out, or I'm going to keep baiting people to think that I am the doctor when in reality I'm the mechanic. And when I played it recently at when I was with all my friends, uh, I have this friend in my group who always cheats, and I've, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, in every single game, <laughs> they find a way to cheat. And you know, some I, I'll give I'll give that person credit. Sometimes it's not intentional, right? It, it's like, sure. oh, I, I I just didn't know the rule, 
Um, but let you know, let me take that back. I'll redo it. But in a hidden role game, that pretty much you know sucks out all the fun, right? Because you've revealed you could reveal very important information at that point, which kind of ruins the game. Anytime we play a game with this friend, it's always that like open joking of like, okay, how long to it before you know so and so cheats? So I, I'm playing Expose, I'm playing with, with the cheater, I'm playing with, uh, I think, two new people to the game, and then I'm playing with my friend Alex, who, uh, anytime he plays games, he's very aggressive, uh, very, and, the, and that's just his play style, that's just the person he is, but like, for, like, for me, it's, it's fun because I, I know him, but like, an example of something he would do, he would be like, Katie is the police officer, just, he would be saying this on somebody else's turn, use your turn to like, declare that she's the police like you need to do it now and like very forcing you to do this when it's like hey buddy it's my turn if you're so confident that she's the police officer wait till your turn to do it but he knows that hey like if he can convince the table to do it he gets what he wants but he also gets his free turn so we're playing this game of exposed and we're with we're with the cheater and my friend will who who's been on the podcast before been on this podcast he's one of my co-hosts on it's super effective he was not playing but he looked at the cheater's card and verified that that said person wasn't cheating. So we got into the situation where every time the said <sighs> cheater would make a move, because we were confident, we were so confident that he was, I think at the time, like, uh, I think it was like the judge or something. And we were so confident that he was the judge, but no one exposed him, right? Because no one... Because if you do that risk of exposing, you're giving away information about yourself. And so we were so confident he was the judge. And at one point he goes, I want to expose you, Steve. I think you're the psychiatrist. And I was like, that's impossible. I was like, you're not even in the same row and column as me. Like the judge is on the, like, you cannot make that move. And we look over at Will and Will looks at the board and goes, yep, he can do that. And we're like, how, like that, you're, how are you not the judge? And so we're uh, so he exposes me. That's fine. Like I'm still trying my best to win the game. And we're going. We ruled out the judge. And so we're watching the cheater move. And he's he's getting closer and closer to winning. And he goes ahead and goes. I want to expose you, Alex. I think you're the the pilot. And and we're like, no. Like stop cheating. Like that's impossible for you to do that. If you're like you're not in this roar column. And so Will comes over and he looks at the board and he goes, yeah, he can do that. And the cheater who didn't cheat, I don't know how it was possible, he won the game and it was such a great experience. One, because, you know, we're so, we were so bent on the entire time that, you know, he was bending the rules to, you know, win the game. But it was also like this, this moment of you had somebody the entire time, every time on your turn, verify with the rest of the table that you could possibly make that move. Because you have earned this reputation of cheating, but you've pl you played the game fairly and you played the game really smart and like I couldn't be upset. I was so like I will never forget <laughs> that moment because it was just so great that like he he legitimately fooled us and like won the game based on the strategy that he used because we were so adamant and and he used that against us. Like, we were so adamant that he was these certain roles, so he would just use that to his advantage. And I don't know if there was any other game that maybe that could capture that experience. And so, Expose is one of the games that my playgroup definitely uh, recommends to bring to the table. And, and it's one that, like, I will happily bring because, again, I don't get strategy games to the table a lot. And Expose is a very light strategy game, and, and I really enjoy that. That's huge, man. Yeah, yeah. It was a very. <laughs> I know what you mean. Like I, it's not that I look for a heavier experience, but I want a game where like I want a game where I can like think through my options and like play kind of strategically, you know. Um, but I also don't want there to be a huge barrier to entry where I have to like spend ten hours learning the game or have played the game four or five times before I can start doing that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I want the choices to be laid out in front of me and for me to really be able to wrestle with them, and so that you were able to find that in kind of a like a lighter game is huge. Yeah, yeah, very easy to teach, very easy to play, and and uh, yeah, so that is that is my game. So, what was your game again? I it's it's, it's French. Flamme Rouge. Do you have spelling so on that? F L A M M E R O U G E, I believe. Two words. Oh, okay. I was trying to find it after BGGCon because I totally forgot the name, and I was like, 
fire bike bicycle game <laughs> tour de france bicycling <laughs> cycling board game BGCon? like i was googling all these things that took me forever and i was asking my girlfriend because she's like athletic and like knows about these sort of things yeah. and she was like it could be this and i was like it's not that and she was like well that's an actual term and i was like but it's not that i know it <laughs> that's great yeah so flam rouge and exposed uh two games we both recommend that you should pick up if uh if you missed them in 2016 uh and that's our show for you guys so hopefully you enjoyed it Hopefully you guys have a all safe and wonderful holiday. Sean, where can they find you? You can find me at Twitter at Sean McCoy, S-E-A-N-M-C-C-O-Y. Great. And you can follow me on Twitter. It is at Dragging A Lake. You can also follow Tuesday Night Games on Twitter at PlayTKG. And if you have any emails, emails uh, regarding questions, comments, or concerns, uh, podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. Uh, last thing I want to say is that Cause of Death Ghost is on the website, the print and play. So just head over to TuesdayNightGames.com and hit the little drop down menu to Cause of Death Ghost and you can get yourself uh, a print and play copy of Cause of Death Ghost. Looks good. Yep. Yep. So there it is. Otherwise, again, have a have a safe and wonderful holiday. We'll be back next week. Uh, and yeah, this has been another episode. Oh, wait, wrong podcast. This, uh, how do I outro these? Um, and this episode is. Ho, ho, ho.